It was on January 10th of this year that President-elect Donald Trump, at a news conference, addressed a reporter for CNN and coined a term that has become symbolic for the entire eight or so months he's been in office. Can we ask you some more questions then, sir? It doesn't bother me at all, but you know, I like real news, not Well, now, with everything that's been going on in the White House, you didn't really think it would take too long for there to be a racehorse with that name, fake news, right? Well, there's not just one, there are two. And one of them trains in South Africa, and he used to be called President Trump. We'll talk with the owner of that horse, Jonathan Snape. Is Kellyanne Conway the horse's exercise rider? It's all straight ahead here on In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit-bobbing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. What's the most basic question you could ever be asked in your life? What's your name, right? Names are usually pretty important. Ask any woman, or man for that matter, who's thought about a name change following a wedding. Your name says so much about you, your gender, your birth culture, and some names are naturally catchy, like New York Yankees rookie slugger Aaron Judge. But your name can also become a problem if it calls unusual, maybe unwarranted, and perhaps snide attention to you. Some people have the same first and last names, for example, like former Philadelphia Eagles running back Anthony Tony. Some people have bestowed on their children names that they will never live down, like actor Rob Morrow naming his daughter too. Seriously. Here at ESPN, play-by-play announcer Robert Lee was supposed to call the University of Virginia's season opener on Labor Day weekend against William & Mary in Charlottesville. ESPN switched his assignment to Youngstown State because his name is so similar to the Confederate general, given the civil unrest recently in Charlottesville. And then there's the naming of racehorses. When you name a horse, you have to register it with your country's sanctioning body. Here in the United States, that's the Jockey Club, of course. And they've allowed some interesting names to pass their censors, like the four-time graded stakes winner from 20 years ago, Is It In Good? Some people want to name their horses after living people, like the Nick Zito trainee from the early 80s named Herschel Walker. The jockey club here in the States would then require you to get written permission from that person. Now in South Africa, there's a newly minted three-year-old horse, Southern Hemisphere horses age a year on August 1st, whose original name was President Trump. I say was because the National Horse Racing Authority in South Africa, their equivalent of the Jockey Club, called the name Problematic. Wait, they think the name is Problematic? So the owners of the horse then requested the name POTUS, the acronym, of course, for President of the United States. Nope, sorry, that one didn't pass either. 
I guess the National Horse Racing Authority was afraid that a spectator would hear an announcer say something like, POTUS is moving, and think it was a Secret Service agent trying to thwart an assassination attempt. Finally, at long last, the owners settled on the phrase that may linger in popular culture even longer than the president's name or code name. Fake news. Yes, the name of the horse is Fake News. No, there's no truth to the rumor that this was the lead story on Breitbart and InfoWars the day the official name was announced, nor is there any truth to the rumor that Alex Jones was hired to be the horse's groom, you know, to clean up the big guy's crap wherever he goes. By the way, this is not the only horse whose name makes a tongue-in-cheek reference to the 45th president. Mary Lou Whitney has a two-year-old in training named Tweeter-in-Chief. He finished ninth in his career debut this month at Saratoga and promptly blamed the media for it. There's also another horse named Fake News, based in California with trainer Carla Gaines. That Fake News is owned by Keith Brackpool, who runs the day-to-day operations at Santa Anita Park. Oh, by the way, Keith Brackpool is also the founder of the Cadiz Project, a 43-mile Southern California water pipeline that's been called expensive, pointless, and potentially environmentally dangerous. The Department of the Interior part of the Trump administration, has tried to push the pipeline through without an environmental review, and they removed two significant and long-standing legal obstacles to the project. Fake news indeed. As for the South African horse, let's hope that if he doesn't finish first in his next start, that he doesn't fire his trainer's communications director. For more on President Trump, I mean POTUS, I mean fake news, we welcome in Steve Bannon, no, I, I mean we welcome in the horse's communications director. I mean owner, Jonathan Snaith. When did you come up with the horse's name? Before or after the election? Well, long before, because they would never have allowed us to name the horse. You know, there's obviously in South Africa the stringent sort of conditions and rules in terms of naming resources worldwide. And they would never give you the name President Trump without permission from the person or the party. You know, you can't even name them after celebrities, uh, even football players, unless you have uh, permission from that person. And, you know, the, the elections were just starting and, um, you know, the, the, the client of the horse came up with the name President Trump that was passed at, at the time with the, the, jockey, the local jockey club in South Africa. And obviously when there was a lot of media sort of around the horse and subsequently when he became president, at the jockey club were under a bit of pressure and they obviously sent us a letter in writing that the name needed to change. And we were forced to change the name and now he's called Fake News. Is this something that you do? Do you just come up with provocative names for your horses just to have a little fun? No, not at all. Basically, you know, the owner of a horse, we, we train racehorses in, in Cape Town, well, in South, around South Africa, but predominantly in Cape Town. And um, the breeding of the horse, the, the sire of the colt was called philanthropist. So the owner came up with the name President Trump. And obviously he was named that for, for quite a few months. And then there was a media storm. And uh, subsequently we were forced by the... National Horse Racing Authority of South Africa to to change his name. Well, yeah, to make this story even better, tell us about the young guy's temperament and what happened to him as a result. Yeah, well, look, I mean, he, he was he was a very naughty cult, and uh, you know, we, we, he was 
try to jump all the fillies running around here all day, you know, and um, he was quite, also quite loud. And, you know, we, every filly that would come in or any cult, he would just come and, and he'd shout. He, he, he really was a, a vocal horse. And subsequently, Sajid Goldenin is completely, you know, settled down and he's starting to focus on his work and, you know, and he's much more manageable and he's uh, settled down really, really well. So basically, the horse whose namesake was caught on tape saying he could sexually harass women with impunity is now had, yeah, the same guy who also told a reporter back in 1994 that you have to treat women like expletive. I guess that makes <laughs> I guess that makes sense. Now, on a somewhat serious tone, we all know that horse racing is basically a leisure sport for those with the means to afford it. So the state of a country's economy plays a big role in whether the racing industry thrives or not. What changes have you noticed in South Africa since Donald Trump became United States president? No, look, I mean, to be completely honest, you know, the, the Americans, you know, there's been a lot of negative speculation, especially on CNN about Donald Trump. That's all we see in South Africa is just CNN attacking him constantly. But if the Americans could only come to South Africa and see what we're dealing with in terms of Jacob Zuma, they would be very happy to have Donald Trump. That I can assure you. He's a he's a walk in the park compared to what we've got down here. Jacob Zuma, he's more a, a clown than a president. You know, he's very, as in terms of our president, he, you know, there's, there's no respect for him locally. And, you know, he's more a laughing stock of, the country than an actual president. You know, that to think that we've come from Nelson Mandela to Jacob Zuma is just frightening. You know, it's just two corners of the earth and really different people and different presidents. And uh, I think America's lucky they don't have a Jacob Zuma, that's for sure. If memory serves, he just withstood a challenge to his power. Am I not correct? Yes, you did. And, you know, and hopefully it'll carry on, you know, and they had a vote inside the party, but his own party is not going to rule against him, which is, or vote against him, which was the problem. And even though some of them did, they didn't get the majority. So it's a, look, it's a natural, slow progression, but I, I just don't see him being president for much longer. I think the whole country is against him. So it's a matter of, it's a, it's a matter of time before um, you see him, you know, pushed aside by his own party, which I think is the way they're going. Jonathan Snaith, owner of a three-year-old South African gelding named Fake News, joins us here on In the Gate. So what are the plans for Fake News, besides trashing two U.S. senators from his own party while making a speech in the state they represent? He's um, basically in full training at the moment, and now that he's, we've got him under control, he's going to have his first uh, gallop at Kenilworth Race Course. And it's going to be quite a publicized gallop because there's a lot of media around him and uh, he's a popular horse locally. So if his gallop's pretty good, then hopefully we're going to have him on the track in the next, I'd say, four to six weeks to make his debut. Now, you mentioned that Fake News does have an American sire philanthropist who won the Grade 3 Queens County Handicap at Aqueduct in New York in 2005 while under the care of trainer Shug McGahee. Philanthropist now stands on a farm in Drakenstein, South Africa, not too far east from where you are in Cape Town, which is on the southwestern coast. So there's a dirt pedigree there. Would you ever consider bringing Fake News here to face the other horse named Fake News in California? I think he'd be very popular. 
I think he, he, he's probably safer in South Africa, to be honest. And I don't think, depending on his gallop, I don't think he's ever going to get ready to the United States unless he's a Group 1 potential. You know, to take South African horses over there, you really have to take the best. Otherwise, you're wasting your time and, um, you know, you're taking on the best horses in the world in the U.S. So you're really going to have a top, top, top race horse to, to even be in the, in the game. And he's got a long way to go. Now, when fake news does run, how concerned do you think he'll be about counting the number of people in the crowd like President Trump does? Sure. He, he, look, I don't think he was a showboat before, but uh, in terms of a horse, but I think if you had asked me that a year ago, we'd be in trouble um, <laughs> around the track. But since subsequently we, he's been gelded, uh, you know, he's just uh, different horse, and I don't think that's been a problem. And maybe that's a solution for you guys over there. Well, since fake news is a gelding, he won't be able to assign his son-in-law to tackle Middle East peace, the opioid epidemic, criminal justice reform, and building trust with a neighboring country who's supposedly going to fit the bill for a border wall. Nonetheless, Jonathan Snape, thank you so much for sharing fake news with all of us here in the United States. Absolute pleasure. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, there is a serious side to the president's influence on the world of horse racing, and it has to do with immigration. Don't go away. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. All kidding aside, there is a very serious effect that the Trump administration is having on the sport of horse racing. It involves the push to deport mass numbers of undocumented immigrants quickly without even appearing in front of a judge. Now, this policy has been in effect for a couple of decades, but mainly for people caught within 100 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border and who are suspected of entering the country in the previous two weeks. Trump's plan expands the pool of those people subject to expedited removal. Some of those who would fall into that added pool work on the backstretches of most, if not all, horse racing tracks and farms. Many of the grooms, hot walkers, and other support workers that keep these operations running smoothly are undocumented immigrants. On June 23rd of this year, eight workers were arrested at Indiana Grand. Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers said that the arrests were targeted. The people had other legal issues, which made them more vulnerable to deportation. According to the Daily Racing Form, ICE officials were not executing a more general sweep of the backstretch. So where do we stand with the Trump administration's immigration policy with regard to horse racing? For more on that question, we welcome in attorney Will Veely of Norman, Oklahoma, who has worked extensively with jockeys and backstretch workers regarding immigration issues all across the country. So, Will, we touched on it earlier, but give us a sense of how important these undocumented workers are to horse racing operations. Okay, and and we always have to be careful because we're low-hanging fruit. And it's agricultural by nature. In the last 50 years, America has become increasingly less agricultural. So the amount of Americans who are available to fill these jobs of taking care of the horses, which really is the foundational job that supports all the other higher level jobs in horse racing, is the groom. And without the groom, there's no need for veterinarians, for the for the horseshoer, for the front side workers. And most of the jobs filled are filled by people from Mexico, Guatemala, some of the other uh, Central American countries. But of those, we've had in the past a visa program, but it's had its difficulties, uh, its inconsistencies, and basically its dysfunctions for the last 
10 years and a lot of people have not been able to get visas and the trainers are faced with a choice of either turning away business, shuttering their businesses or hiring people that are not documented. So there is a number of undocumented workers on the backside of the track working side by side with documented workers who either have visas or have through one way or the other become permanent residents. But uh, their, their importance can't be overstated without the, without the grooms, the thing industry would literally shut down overnight. Now you said to me off air that you've done a lot of work with jockeys and backstretch workers pro bono, that it's not necessarily your main focus of operations of your law firm, but you do this. Why is this so important to you? I grew up with my own horses. My grandfather was an old country doctor who um, ran horses, so I used to run around the backside of the track when I was a kid, and, and he always told me this country has, it saved our lives, it, it saved our family. He came over with five kids, one of them almost died in World War II. They, they gave back to their country, and I see these workers who have come here for the same reasons that my people came here, for a better life for their family, hardworking folks, they're contributing to society, and for whatever reason, political will or inertia, they can't find their way onto the right side of legal status. So I recognize what solid, hardworking guys these are, and, and I'm lucky enough to have found my niche working with the horse racing industry, and, and I love it. If you get a choice between sitting in an office or walking the backside of a track and talking to people that work with horses, it, it, that's a neat choice for me. So it's a labor of love. I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to do it. It would seem to me that the undocumented question has probably been a don't ask, don't tell situation. I mean, how accurate is that? And how has that question come up given the new policy by Immigration and Customs Enforcement? Well, it, it has come up, but not directly. The way the horse tracks work is that if you have a license from another jurisdiction, then you can typically get licensed in whatever jurisdiction you're coming and asking for. And, and there's certain places, you know, Illinois, where you can, as long as you don't have a criminal record, you can get a horse license. So, you know, if, as long as you're licensed in one, you can usually get licensed in the other. There are some tracks that you can't step foot on them if you can't show, you know, birth certificate in the United States. I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm speaking hyperbole, but, you know, they're much more strict. But most of them, they leave the enforcement up to the trainers and to the workers, which is how it should be. The Horse Racing Commission has enough issues to enforce uh, without having to check everybody's papers they come to work. You know, so they have to make sure that they're not doping and that they're, they're still on the backside of the track. So how it has affected the workers is, in general, just a, a, of unease to write down fear where people, if they don't have papers and they're on the backside of the track, they don't leave. What changed between the previous administration and the current administration is back in January when uh, President Trump put out the executive orders, one was the build the wall order and the other was um, a law uh, enforcing the law. It had a name, something enforcing the law. And it changed the priorities for deportation. Previously, President Obama had listed five priorities for deportation. If you were a felon, drug dealer, gang member, you'd been previously deported, or you'd had a domestic violence. If you, any of those five, and you were, you came in contact with the police, then you were put into deportation. And, and let's not forget, President Obama deported more people than any president before him. He, he, he deported more in his first four years than Bush deported in all eight. So 
it's not like Obama was, you know, soft on, on immigration. But what President Trump did is he changed it from those five priorities to if you have ever been charged with any crime, no matter how minor. So where it's getting people is if they're driving without a driver's license. And if you're undocumented, you can't have a driver's license except in in uh, seven states, which is Illinois, Michigan, New Mexico, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, Delaware, Maryland, and Vermont. If you're not in those states, you can't get a driver's license. If you get pulled and you get taken in, then the police now under President Trump's executive order have to turn you over to immigration and immigration uh, has a priority to deport you. So if you have no relief, then you're going to be deported. That's what the sanctuary city argument is about, because a lot of the cities say, wait, we don't need to turn over somebody who just has a traffic infraction over to you if they haven't done anything that, you know, is causing a threat to public safety. But, you know, that's that's where we are. So there is a palpable sense of fear, unease, if you want to call it that, amongst the workers to where I was I was on walking the backside of Belmont about two weeks ago. And one of the trainers said, you know, we used to not have any problems getting workers, not meaning, you know, if, if there weren't, the visa program wasn't available, then there was workers that were, you know, would go barn to barn and, and offer to work for the day. But he said, those workers are gone. I mean, the, the numbers, and if you look at the numbers, the numbers of people coming in are way down and the numbers of people leaving the United States are way up. So uh, there, there's been a noticeable decrease in available workers. Now, you add that to an economy that Right now, our economy is booming. We've got, you know, three and a half percent unemployment in a lot of places. So these jobs, which are difficult to fill when the economy has lots of jobs to, you know, offer, they're unfillable right now. It's one of those perfect storms where there are not enough workers for um, the jobs that are open and there's there's no filling them. It's interesting you brought up New York. We're talking with Will Veeley, an attorney in Norman, Oklahoma, who has worked quite a bit with jockeys and backstretch workers in the thoroughbred industry and is nice enough to share a few minutes with us. The chairman of the New York Racing Association, Chris Kay, told a group of Saratoga business leaders just before the start of the current meet, if ICE shows up, do I block ICE at the doors? No. However, he also stressed that Naira has been offering assistance to trainers to ensure that their employees have green cards or some other proof they're here in this country legally. What's your approach when you hear that kind of rhetoric? Well, I I, I agree with him, and and uh, I've got to say that you know the New York Thoroughbred Association is is one of the most proactive, you know, under Rick Violet and the, the New York Racetrack Chaplaincy under Umberto Chavez and uh, Nick Karras, those guys are the best. I mean, they take such good care of their workers. There's some places where, you know, I kind of shake my head and, and wonder, you know, some of the guys, you know, actually think about the conditions that the workers, you know, it's, it's rare, but sometimes the conditions aren't that great, but, you know, New York, they take care of the housing, the education, the healthcare activities on the outside. So when they say that they're helping with the immigration, they're right. Uh, New York is, is one of the very best in terms of taking care of their, their people. Now, if, if ICE comes to the door, there's, there's nothing you can do to stop them. What they've been doing, and this has happened, um, it's happened in several tracks. When you get a license to work at a track, you have to give your fingerprint record. So ICE goes through those fingerprints, runs the fingerprints. If there's anybody who has any previous criminal record, they will come get them. And they've been coming onto the backside of the tracks. And 
they have been targeted and specific in who they pick up. They haven't done any sweeps, but they will come to a dorm and they will pick up seven or eight people that have had previous criminal offenses. And so when that happens, it's the, the track work with ICE. There, there's no standing and blocking them at the door that wouldn't be legal to begin with. So, and I don't think it would be very smart because they're low hanging fruit and, you know, you want to cooperate and not bring, you know, worse things down on you. So, well, that said, what about trainers and owners? What kind of background checks do they do on the workers that they hire? Well, and, and this is a great question, uh, Barry. Okay. So when you hire a worker, you are required by immigration law to check their papers within the first 72 hours. Now, if you go beyond that, then the EOC will hit you with a huge fine for discrimination. It's called document abuse. If you say, oh, no, I don't think these documents are real, and you go check outside, then you've actually committed discrimination, and they'll hit you so fast with a $50,000 fine, you won't know what hit you. So what I tell my trainers, this is what I always say, I say, if your I-9s are tight, you're all right. Just as long as you make sure that your I-9s are good, if your workers give you documents that on their face are reasonably uh, appear to be genuine, then you've done your duty. You, you uh, write down the identifying numbers, you put those documents away, and if immigration comes, you are immunized from liability, and you've done your job. You have no duty to go any farther than that. So as long as the workers are presenting good documents, then they've done their duty on background checks. Now, that's different than, you know, they have to get a criminal background check to get a license, and, and those background checks are separate. But for immigration, there's a form called an I-9. You fill it out. It's one paragraph. You write down that they showed you a Social Security card and a driver's license, and you're good. And so that's what I tell them. Keep your I-9 straight, and you're going to be fine. So we talked about it a little bit earlier, but bottom line, what kind of feeling do you get from these workers about how this new immigration policy is affecting them? Uh, Hunter Thompson, uh, fear and loathing. It's awful. I mean, it, it wasn't good before, but now there's just a sense of dread. They don't leave the backside of the track. They're, they're scared and they're scared for good reason. And, you know, you, you compound their isolation when, when you have situations where they're afraid that if they talk to the police, they're going to get picked up. So where, you know, these guys get paid a paycheck and they have to go across the street, you know, let's say fairgrounds, fairgrounds in the middle of New Orleans, not the best neighborhood. They have to take their check to a check cashing place. The people that might prey on them know that these guys aren't documented. So they're going to be carrying cash. And so these guys are target for getting beat up and robbed. So it's just this spillover knock on effect where because they can't have a driver's license, they, they can't drive and they're afraid to even leave the backside of the track. But when they do, they, they're afraid that the police are, are, you know, looking to send them to a, a difficult situation back home. And so they stay in their dorms and it's, it's a bad situation that uh, is unnecessary. You know, they these people have been here for a long time. They're hardworking folks. They're very law abiding people by and large. And, and, they, they work really hard and contribute to our society. So to, to single them out is it's just a, it's a, it's a shame. The bucolic setting of the backstretch, not quite as bucolic when you dig a little deeper. Will Veely, thank you so much for sharing a few minutes with us here on In the Gate. Yeah, and, and Barry, I'd just like to thank you for your time. And, and uh, what these do doesn't take away anything from the beauty of horse racing. They're a great texture to a beautiful sport. 
Our thanks once again to Will Veely and to Jonathan Snaith. I took my wife to Saratoga just a few weeks ago to watch Gunrunner annex the Whitney. Sitting right beside us were a couple we just met who didn't expect the track was where they'd be. We met them just that morning as we left our bed and breakfast, where all guests usually dine communally. We really hit it off. They both grew up in Eastern Europe, where we'd gone to become an adoptive family. We had two extra tickets for the box we get each year, since our son was far away at summer camp. So we gifted the tickets to this couple who'd never seen horse racing, and their faces as they sauntered up the ramp into the grandstand where this spectacle unfolded all afternoon was priceless. They soaked up the atmosphere. And if they're not careful, they might be back. Who knows what could happen next? Perhaps they'll be players at the sales one year. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.